Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank You for that truth. We thank You that Your ways are not only higher than ours, but they're always right. And they're always best for us, Lord. No matter what we may think is best for us, no, no matter what we may want, no matter what seems more comfortable to us, we want to follow Your way, Lord. Give us faith. Give us faith in every turn and in every decision to trust You with the big things and the small things in our lives. Visit with us now, Father, as we study Your Word. Give us open hearts and minds. We pray in the precious name of Your Son. Amen. I want to tell you a story about a man named Dick Rowe. Dick Rowe was one of the most important producers and and record executives in the United Kingdom in the 1950s and early 60s. He's the man who signed the Rolling Stones, Van Morrison, the Moody Blues, Tom Jones, Cat Stevens, and a number of other successful music acts. But despite all of his success, Dick Rowe will always be remembered for one bad choice. In 1962, Rowe was an executive at British music company Decca Records. And he was tasked by Decca to find the next big musical act in an effort to expand Decca's portfolio and and their sales revenue and their musical influence. And so one of his A&R scouts, Mike Smith, brought to Dick Rowe uh, two deals, two potential deals. One of them was a band named Brian Poole and the Tremolos. And the other was a band strangely named after Bugs, the Beatles. Well, Rowe knew he could only sign one band. So he listened carefully to the audition tapes. He liked what he heard from the Tremolos. Then he listened to the Beatles audition tapes. It was 15 songs on a 12-inch audio tape. And he thought it sounded like a fad that would quickly fade away. So declaring that guitar bands were on their way out, Rowe rejected the Beatles and signed Brian Poole and the Tremolos. Well, the Tremolos went on to have some modest success. But the Beatles, who went on to land a recording contract with EMI, within two years earned an estimated $15 million in record sales in the U.S. alone in two years. And they went on to become the biggest selling and most influential band of all time. So despite whatever success Rowe had before that and would go on to have after that, he will always be remembered for that one bad choice. The man who rejected the Beatles. Asked about it years later, he said, you know what? I followed my gut. Well, his gut was wrong. His instincts were wrong. It happens, doesn't it? It happens to us. So often throughout our lives, we're faced with a decision, a choice we have to make. And there's usually a way that seems better to us, more advantageous to us. It it feels more right. It's more known. It's more comfortable. It's what we call our gut feel, right? Our instinct. We rely on those feelings. It feels like the right way to go. But so many times, we find out after the fact that We were wrong. Our feelings let us down. Our gut instinct was wrong. And over time, we discover that the story of our lives and the story of our legacy is really a collection of choices we've made and the resulting outcomes. 
They end up defining us like they did for Dick Rowe. And as we begin to introspect and take stock and look back at the number of bad choices in our lives that resulted from following our gut, from following our feelings and our instincts, we begin to ask why we keep making the same bad decisions. And the answer is simple. The decision-making process is flawed because the decision-maker is flawed. Following our gut doesn't work out every time. Following our instinct, doing what feels right, isn't working for us. We need a better standard. We need a better guide. And Isaiah chapter 55 provides us the perfect one. Turn with me to our text this morning or look up at the screens to Isaiah 55. We're going to read four verses starting in verse 6. Isaiah 55, 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and He will have mercy on them. And to our God, for He will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's a great truth. His thoughts are not our thoughts and and His ways are not our ways. And I don't think many of us would argue that. We would freely admit that our thoughts and our ways are different from those of, of God's. And I would further argue that we would go on to say that His ways and His thoughts are higher than ours. But in the heat of the moment, in the pressure of the fire, when decisions must be made, when paths must be chosen, when our emotions and our wills and our wants are on the line, how difficult it becomes for us to admit that His thoughts and His ways are the right ones for us. See, we're fine. We're we're fine and, and we're comfortable deferring to God when it's theoretical. But it's the application that gets us every time. We like the theology of deferring to Him. We like the theology of saying His ways are higher than ours. But when the rubber meets the road, it's difficult. It's different, isn't it? Today we're going to look at two stories that illustrate this point so well. Two stories. One that examines God's thoughts versus man's thoughts. And one that examines God's ways versus man's ways. So our first story today about God's thoughts versus man's thoughts, centers around a man named Saul, King Saul. He was Israel's first king, a man who I'm sure would admit that God's thoughts were higher than his. But he didn't go further in applying that, that important truth to obey God when the pressure was on. So let's look at King Saul's choice in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. 1 Samuel 13. Verse 1, Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 300 men from Israel. Sorry, 3,000 men. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their home. So 3,000 soldiers. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. 
Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. They're mortal enemies. And now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So the Philistines now assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of beth When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets, among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops were with him there were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. Let's stop here. See, Samuel told Saul to wait for him to come and and offer a burnt sacrifice to God on behalf of the troops. He was dedicating and blessing their war effort to anoint the soldiers with God's favor. But the problem here was that the enemy was looming. The soldiers were anxious and quaking with fear and and Samuel was nowhere in sight. So Saul makes a quick decision. Verse 9. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived. And Saul went out to greet him. It's like the parent catching the kid. The hand in the cookie jar. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Saul replied. Here we go. Commence finger pointing. Well, when I saw that the men were scattering and you, you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart and appointed him ruler of His people because you have not kept the Lord's command. It's important to understand here that God's law established that only priests were to offer sacrifices to God. That's how it was set up. Saul knew this. He was king. He knew God's law. But Saul was working with a deadline. Saul was working under pressure. Saul was working with many voices and opinions around him. Soldiers quitting. Enemies were assembling. And and waiting in the dark just didn't work for Saul. God's timing was not convenient for Saul. What if Samuel changed his mind? What if Samuel was a no-show? Saul got too nervous, too stressed, too tired of waiting, so he jumped the gun and offered the sacrifice himself. Problem solved. Right? The end justifies the means. We hear that a lot. Nice quote. Except that it's not true. Not by God's thinking and not by God's ways at least. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Right? We hear that one a lot. We use that one a lot. I've used that one. It's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. It's the classic theme song of countless incarcerated prisoners. Truth is, it isn't better. Not to God. Not when you realize that forgiveness doesn't necessarily erase consequences. 
Lo and behold, Samuel shows up. And when he confronts Saul in chapter 15, look what he explains. 1 Samuel 15, 22. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Saul, God would rather have your obedience than your sacrifice. Well, so much for what God, what Sam, uh, Saul thought of God's priorities. He thought God valued that sacrifice above all else. But God valued obedience far more than the sacrifice. Why? Well, because his thoughts are not our thoughts. The king of Israel setting a precedent to ignore God's law for sacrificial offerings. And he figures, what's the big deal? Did Saul know of God's entire plan? From the inception of mankind's sin in the Garden of Eden to the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross? No. Did he know the plan was in place that only a priest could enter the Holy of Holies, which was curtained off by a veil in the temple? And only that priest could offer sacrifices on behalf of people for their sins. Yeah. And that this intermediary would be required for centuries until the time Christ came and died on Calvary and shredded the veil, removing the need for the intermediary and allowing us to go directly to God for the forgiveness of our sins. No. He had no idea. Saul had no clue what God was working, what God was planning, or what God was thinking. All he knew was about the immediate deadline in front of his face. Here, God had a plan in place to span the ages for redeeming mankind and providing a permanent solution to the problem of sin. But Saul had a deadline. And his limited thinking and his limited knowledge and his limited viewpoint became the basis for his decision making, for his disobedience, for his rebellion. Rebellion? Whoa, whoa. I'd hardly call Saul's impulsive act rebellion. God does. That's exactly how Samuel described it. And God detests rebellion. Did you catch verse 23? For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. You know, in our, in our simple humanity, we often have an unspoken ranking of sins. Right? Murder is worse than lack of self-control and stealing is worse than lying and surely divination, which is witchcraft or sorcery, is worse than rebellion and surely idolatry is far worse than arrogance. No, not to God. He says they're all sin. Rebellion is just like the sin of divination and arrogance is just like the sin of idolatry. How can that be? Surely there are levels of sin, right? There must be a ranking. No, not to God. To Him, sin is sin. Why? Because his thoughts are not our thoughts. God's thoughts are holy. Ours are unholy. God's thoughts are righteous. Ours are unrighteous. God's thoughts are eternal. Ours are temporal. You notice how often we change our minds. We change our standards. We change our stances. God's thoughts are heavenly. Ours are earthly. God's thoughts are perfect. Ours are flawed. We may not understand it. We... we, We may not know 
what God is thinking or why He is thinking it. But we have to recognize that His thoughts are higher than ours. And furthermore, that's got to drive our decision-making process, right? When we have those difficult choices in life, His thoughts are higher than ours. Consult what God thinks about the matter. Consult what God's Word tells us about the matter. Saul acted based on his own prioritization system. His own thoughts as to what he felt was more important than obedience to God. Did you see what he said? I felt compelled to offer the burnt sacrifice. Compelled. What compelled you, Saul? Who compelled you? Surely it wasn't a godly stirring. Surely it wasn't from godly counsel. No, he was compelled by his own thoughts, his own priorities, his own fears, the looming enemy, the trembling soldiers around him, the deadline, the pressure, the urgency, the what-ifs. Saul was driven by everything possible except obedience to God. How often do we let fear drive our decisions? How often do we let stress guide our actions? It happens. It happens, doesn't it? It happens far too often. But the end of fear-based decision-making is destruction. The end of self-made decision-making is destruction. The end of answering to no one is destruction. The end of disobedience is destruction. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that appears right, but in the end it leads to death. See, the parameters for our decision-making, for what appears right to us, are almost always flawed. Red flags, red warning lights should be going off in our head when our decisions are based solely on what we think is right and what we think is right isn't founded on biblical principles. Right? What is it founded on? Well, it's founded on statements like this. It's what everyone else is doing. It's acceptable to the world. It's available here and now. No more waiting is needed. Right? That one catches us. It's what I've always wanted. It's known and it's comfortable. Something better might not come along. This will finally make me happy. And you know, it never does for long. Friend, if these thoughts are the foundations of our decisions and our choices, we're headed for nothing but trouble. Nothing but heartache and nothing but destruction. In that one hasty moment, Saul jumped onto a slippery slope that would lead to his destruction. His actions revealed his integrity and his value system. And although Saul continued on as king for a little while, he lost the kingdom that day. His actions set in motion the end of his reign and the rise of David as God's chosen king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. What's the takeaway for us? Recognize that God's thoughts are higher than ours. There are difficult, difficult choices in life. These choices are rarely black and white, which is why they're so difficult. So we must call on God to direct us, to give us His wisdom. Seek His wisdom. Seek His thinking. The last thing we want to do is jump hastily in our own thinking, driven by every internal and external factor that sways us. Seek God. Seek God and recognize that His thoughts are higher than ours. 
I want to know what God thinks about this matter. I want to know what God's word says about this matter. That's what we should be asking. That's what we should be doing. He's omniscient. God knows all things. He not only knows about every detail in the universe, every detail around us, He also knows us better than we know ourselves. Trust His thoughts. Trust His knowledge. Even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense to us, how foolish would we be not to defer to the Creator of the universe? One day, a a skeptic and a Christian were both sitting under an oak tree and the skeptic started criticizing all the ways that God got everything backwards in creation. He said, look, look, take this oak tree, for example. God put a little acorn on this tree that has branches that are more than strong enough to support it. And yet God put watermelons on flimsy vines that can't even hold the watermelon up. He said, if I were God, I would have done it right. I would have put watermelons on trees and acorns on vines. Well, about that time, an acorn fell out of the oak tree and hit the skeptic on the head. Christian said, good thing it wasn't a watermelon. God is always right. He knows what he's doing, doesn't he? His thoughts are always higher than our thoughts. Our second story, God's ways are higher than our ways. This one involves one of Jesus' miracles and a man who came to him with a desperate need. Let's look at Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And so Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. Every time, every time I read this story, I get very anxious. A sense of nervousness hits me because there's a time crunch there. I want to hurry Jesus through that crowd. Lord, Jairus' daughter is dying. It's critical. Attend to her first, and then you know what? You can come back and help this woman whose issue has been lifelong. Right? There's no urgency there. And Lord, let, let's, let's be honest. Jairus here is an important man, a leader in the synagogue. He's a man of position and power and influence. And this here is an unknown woman. We'll never even know her name. I'm sure Jairus was thinking the same thing. And our way, our way is so clear to us, right? Because we're only thinking about our way. About what affects us. About the immediate need we have. Bigger picture? We don't see it. We can't see it. God knows and sees so far beyond our limited viewpoint. What happened? Jesus tarried. He stayed behind. And He took great care to find the woman in need, to speak to her, to heal her and to send her off as a changed woman. 
Keep reading verse 30. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? Uh, You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Oh, it's heartbreaking. What a shame. See, Lord, had you only done things my way, everything would have worked out great. We feel that way often, don't we? But God's ways are higher than our ways. He has a plan of which we may never be able to conceive or understand but His ways are always higher than ours. Our struggle to see what God sees shouldn't drive us to doubt. It should drive us to trust. Jesus tarried. You could preach a whole sermon on why He tarried. There are so many reasons and and so many we can't even think of. He tarried because He had a different plan. He tarried because He wanted to emphasize the equality and importance of all God's children. Not just the rich or the well-known or the powerful. He tarried because he wanted to teach a lesson on faith. He tarried to strengthen the faith of his disciples. He tarried to strengthen the faith of Jairus. He tarried to emphasize that with God, nothing is too late and nothing is impossible. He tarried to set up a bigger miracle, thus bringing greater glory to God. We don't know all the reasons, but we can summarize them this way. He tarried because his ways are higher than ours. Keep reading verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha, kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. Death answers to God. All the doubts melted away. All the criticisms were quickly forgone. All the urgings to do things the humanly logical way were gone. Jesus proved clearly, effectively, and without a doubt that God's ways are higher than our ways. He was late for a healing, but by whose clock? Right? He never intended to heal that little girl. Jesus knew all along that he would raise her from the dead. And for that resurrection, he was right on time. Both of these stories illustrate that difference in timing so well. 
Samuel arrived outside of Saul's expected timing. And Jesus arrived outside of Jairus' expected timing. So it becomes clear to us to throw out our timings and patiently wait for God's. And, And let's be honest with ourselves here. We have one desired timing. When do we always want God's blessings, God's answers, and God's rescue? Now, right now. That's the only time we know. Right now, a clock. Throw it out. Throw it out. Stop trying to force your way. Stop trying to pick your fruit before it's ripe. Trust His timing. It's perfect. Always and every time. Wait patiently on Him. When we trust His timing, when we seek His guidance, when we wait on Him, we will never go wrong. Writing about God's sure guidance, British pastor Frank Borum recounted a time when a minister visited his home in New Zealand. And being young and inexperienced, Borum sought the counsel of his guest. He said that one morning while they were sitting on the veranda looking out over the golden plains to the purple sunlit mountains, he asked the minister, can a man be sure that in the hour of perplexity he will be rightly led by God? Can he feel secure against making a false step? Oh, I'm certain of it, exclaimed the minister, if he will but give God time. As long as you live, remember that. Give God time. And little do we know what happens in that waiting. Little do we know that that waiting is for our benefit. The truth is we're not waiting on him. He's waiting on us. He's waiting on us to develop. He's waiting on us to learn. He's waiting on us to be patient. He's waiting on us to trust. Russell Kelfer captured this so beautifully in the modern classic poem simply entitled, Wait. Desperately, helplessly, lovingly I cried. Quietly, patiently, lovingly, he replied. I pleaded and I wept for a clue to my fate. And the master so gently said, Child, you must wait. Wait? You say, wait, my indignant reply. Lord, I need answers. I need to know why. Is your hand shortened or have you not heard? By faith I have asked and I'm claiming your word. My future and all to which I can relate hangs in the balance and you tell me, wait? I'm needing a yes or a go-ahead sign or even a no to which I can resign. And Lord, you have promised that if we believe, we need but to ask and we shall receive. And Lord, I've been asking and this is my cry. I'm weary of asking. I need a reply. Then quietly, softly, I learned of my fate. As my master replied once again, you must wait. So I slumped in my chair, defeated and taught and grumbled to God. So I'm waiting for what? He seemed then to kneel and his eyes met with mine. And he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens and darken the sun. I could raise the dead and cause mountains to run. All you seek, I could give and pleased you would be. You'd have what you want, but you wouldn't know me. You'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through clouds of despair. You'd not learn to trust just by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence was all you could see. You would never experience that fullness of love as the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. 
You would know that I give and I save for a start, but you'd not know the depth and the beat of my heart. The glow of my comfort late in the night. The faith that I give you when you walk without sight. The depth that's beyond getting just what you ask from an infinite God who makes what you have last. And you never would know, should your pain quickly flee, what it means that my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dreams for that loved one overnight could come true, but the loss if you lost what I'm doing in you. So be silent, my child. And in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to get to know me. And though oft may my answers seem terribly late, my most precious answer of all is still wait. His timing may not be what we would choose may not be what we would understand, but it's always, always best for us. It's doing a work in us because God's ways are higher than ours. God's ways are based on His all-knowing knowledge and His all-knowing timetable. Ours are based on what? Our immediate desire for immediate answers. That's all we know. God's ways are time-tested. Ours have far too often failed time and time again. God's ways are unselfish and sacrificial. Ours are self-centered and self-serving. God's ways are omniscient. Ours are based on our very narrow viewpoint. God's ways are immutable. They're unchangeable. Ours are fickle and always changing. God's ways are guaranteed. Ours are always leaving us disappointed and defeated. Are you seeking and following God's way in your life? It's not always easy. It requires us to set aside our will, to set aside our plans, to set aside our desires to pursue His. Walter Knight told of an old Scottish woman who went from home to home across the countryside selling thread, buttons, and shoestrings. When she came to an unmarked crossroads, She would toss a stick into the air and go in the direction the stick pointed when it landed. One day, however, she was seen tossing the stick up several times. Why do you toss the stick more than once, someone asked. Because, replied the woman, it keeps pointing to the left and I want to take the road on the right. She then dutifully kept throwing up the stick in the air until it pointed the way she wanted to go. We do that, don't we? I want to follow God's way, but I want God's way to be this. You know what? So I'll look for counsel and I'll look for support that matches my desire. Friend, it doesn't work that way. If you truly want God's will and God's way in your life, if you truly recognize that His way is higher, then when you discover His way, you must follow it. It's easier said. It's easier said than done. It's easy to say, but... When the realization hits and sets in that His way requires patient waiting, often in the dark, His way may have pain associated with it, that there may be a sacrifice of our wills or our dreams or our desires, then following it becomes much more difficult. But it's in that difficulty we must remember His ways are not just higher in a theoretical or theological sense. They're higher and better in a practical sense too. You see, friend, if God's thoughts 
are higher than our thoughts and God's ways are higher than our ways, can we not conclude that He knows what's best for us? His thoughts are the right thoughts for us to adopt. His ways are the right ways for us to follow. Learn of His ways. Learn of His thoughts. That is the standard to pursue. So what's the application? Those higher ways and those higher thoughts should drive our decision making. Right? That's the standard. We said we need a better standard. That's the standard. That's the standard to pursue. That's the guideline in every decision we face in life. God's thoughts and His ways must be the litmus test that we take before we take one step. But I don't know what God thinks of this. Well, seek out His thoughts. Dive into His Word. Ask, read, study, learn of His ways. I don't know what God wants me to do in this situation. Seek Him out. Come to Him in prayer. Seek His wisdom. Seek godly counsel. You know, ignorance can never be an excuse for rash decision making. God has given us too many resources and too many avenues for help for us to claim we didn't know better. Right? We may not know, but we know how to know. We know how to find out. Seek His way and wait patiently on His timing. We saw it so clearly in the disobedience of Saul and in the miracle for Jairus' daughter. We won't always understand what God is doing in our lives. We won't always understand the requests He makes of us. We won't always understand His silence. We won't always understand the interruptions and the sidetracks that come along. But our responsibility isn't to understand or to make sense of it all. Ours is but to trust Him. Trust in the One who will never fail and never falter. Trust His thoughts and trust His ways. Friend, if you're here today and you find yourself at one of those perplexing crossroads of life, you know what? You're in the perfect place to seek God's guidance. Don't jump out. Don't jump out in haste. Don't let the external pressures and stress drive your actions. Don't let your internal thoughts and your fears drive your actions. Seek His way. Seek His guidance. Always remember that His thoughts are higher than ours. His ways are higher than ours. His timing is higher than ours. And therefore, His plan for our lives is perfect for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Your perfect plan for our lives. In our own flawed thinking, in our obstructed vision, Lord, we make plans that we think will be ideal for us. But time and time again, we find only heartache, defeat, and destruction. Give us the strength, Lord, to take those plans and place all of them, all of our plans and our thoughts and our ways on Your altar and trade them for Yours. We recognize beyond any doubt that Your thoughts are higher than ours. Your ways are higher than ours. Your timing is higher than ours. And therefore, Your plan for our lives is higher than ours, better than ours, and perfect for us. Thank You. Thank You, Lord, for making Your guidance so available to us. 
Father, help us to seek it out. Help us to seek You out. Every day and in every moment, in every circumstance, Lord, we want Your leading. We want to follow. And we thank You for Your presence in our lives, Lord. In the precious name of Your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.